Today is the Sunday of joy, the third Sunday of Advent. In many traditions, this is the Sunday when there is a rose-colored candle in the Advent wreath. We don't have one today, but if we did, we would light it. Joy is such a wondrous state of being, isn't it? The New Testament word for joy is derived from a root word that means to lean, to be inclined toward. To know joy, to have joy, is to know that we are noticed. It is to know that we are noticed favorably. One commentator has described joy as grace recognized. To be joyful is to know that we are loved. And so the prophet Zephaniah erupts in this joyful acclamation, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has turned away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall fear disaster no more. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior who gives victory. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you in his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing as on the day of festival. In the midst of all that is wrong, all that is lacking, the prophet proclaims a future full of promise, a future of great joy in which people know in the deepest way possible that they are God's people, that God is favorably disposed toward them, that God notices them, that God loves them. And in saying this, Zephaniah is in alignment with those angel, that angel that spoke to those shepherds on that night of Jesus' birth. Tim recited those words for us earlier. Do not be afraid. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy to all the people. To hear, to see, to feel, to discover, to realize, to to know otherwise in any way possible that God is with us and that God is for us. That is the pure gospel. That is the life-giving water that overflows from the wellspring, the baptismal wellspring of God's good favor. And it is joyful. And then there is John the Baptist. Lord, have mercy. John, what are you doing here on the day of joy? What is that you say, John? You brood of vipers who warned you of the wrath to come. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root, 
Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And where is the joy in that? I hear John's scathing denunciation, and I'm left to wonder, is he a prophet or is he a Puritan? You do know the definition of a Puritan, don't you? A Puritan is a person who is haunted by the fear that someone somewhere may be having a good time. John would seem to be such killjoy, wouldn't he? His approach hardly seems the best way to win friends and influence people, to call your congregation a brood of vipers, to, to speak of judgment and wrath and fire, and to denigrate the, pedig- the, the, the pedigree of your people. I don't think I'd get very far with that approach, do you? And even if it worked, I don't think I could bring myself to do it. I've tasted judgmental religion, and I don't like it. I want no part of it. Give me joy. I'll write, I'll light the, the rose-colored candle. And yet, in John's case, there seems to be something more than judgmentalism going on here. Because when the people hear him, they say to John, what shall we do? They, they don't push back. They don't walk away. They're not offended. They recognize that they've been missing the mark. They hear, they really hear John say that repentance is a change of direction that leads to a change of destination. It is a change in orientation that results in a change in the outcome of life. It does no good to presume upon some inherited identity. They must really live like God's people if they want to be God's people. And so it is with us that if we are to know that we are God's people, we must live accordingly. Now, this has nothing to do with earning God's favor. It has everything to do with aligning with God's favor. It has everything to do with putting ourselves in the great stream of God's life-giving grace. In his own inimitable way, John is really pointing us toward joy. He points us toward joy in that he points us to Jesus. John says, I baptize you with water, but the one who's more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not even worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John points to Jesus as one who is yet to come. And when he comes, he will be the source of joy. We know Jesus, of course, as one who has come. And we know him also as one who will come. And this Advent season is about waiting, hoping, expecting him to come. And a part of the joy that is in Jesus is is knowing that when he comes again for us, he will invite us into the fullness of his reign. 
He will reign over us with gladness. He will renew us in His love. We will see Him face to face, eye to eye, mind to mind, heart to heart. We will see Him as He is. And we will be like Him. The promise of what we are yet to be is the source of great joy. It is our reason for living. Christ in us, the hope of glory. John points to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in taking away the sins of the world, He surely takes away our sins. In Him we are forgiven. We are set free to become the very ones that God made us to be. And nothing, nothing could be better than that. And so we have joy over the prospect, over the promise of what we are yet to be. We know Jesus as the one who will come, and when He comes, He will invite us into the fullness of His reign, and we will be like Him And we know Him as the one who has come. And in that sense, we know Jesus as seeing through a mirror dimly. We know Jesus now only in part. We do not know the whole of Him. We know only part. And yet, the part we know is pure love. And that is the most joyful knowledge possible. The story that is almost certainly true is told of the great Protestant theologian Karl Barth. After a lecture at the University of Chicago in 1962, Karl Barth was asked if he could summarize his life's work in theology in a single sentence. Dr. Bart is reported to have said, yes, I can. I can summarize my life's work in theology in a single sentence. In the words of a song I learned at my mother's knee, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. To know that Jesus loves us, to know it by knowing and reflecting prayerfully upon His story as it is told in Holy Scripture. Sisters and brothers, that is the source of great joy. To have the Holy Spirit confirm with our spirits that we are God's children, that is the highest joy we can know in this world. And yet there's even more. And John points toward this. When the people, the soldiers, and the tax collectors ask him what they should do, John tells them that they should share. If you have two coats, give one to someone who has no coat. If you have food, give to someone who has no food. John tells them to treat others with kindness, with respect, with fairness. 
John admonishes them to be generous because in being generous, they align their lives with God's will and purpose. To see others as Jesus sees them. To love others as God loves them. That is spiritual maturity. That is holiness. That is sanctification. That is the highest that we can attain in our relationship with God. To treat others as Jesus treats them is God's will and purpose and joy. In this we are united with Christ who sees the crowd and is moved with compassion. In this we are one with Christ who seeks the lost and saves the sinners. In fact, if we really want to know the extent of God's love for us, then we would do well to ponder the extent of God's love for others. It is in the realization of how Christ cherishes others that we begin to comprehend how much he cherishes us. Consider precious Madeline, who received the sacrament of baptism this morning. Now, can you possibly doubt the love of God for this precious little girl? Of course not. We see her and we know that God loves her. She received the baptism of water this morning. Over the course of her life, Christ will baptize her with the Holy Spirit. Christ will immerse her, will surround her with the very life of God. She will be baptized with the fire of God's energy, and that energy is nothing less than pure, unbounded love. To see her, to know how much God loves her, how much God loves the person who's sitting in front of you and sitting behind you, the person who is sitting next to you, how much God loves your loved ones, how much God loves the people with whom you work, your friends, your colleagues, your neighbors, strangers even. To know that God loves even your enemies is to know that God loves you. And so John points to Jesus, and interestingly enough, one of the ways that he points to Jesus is through others, and it is as Jesus taught us. In this there is great joy, the gift of others whom God loves and who enable us to love God. I remember a little song we used to teach the children. J-O-Y, J-O-Y, I know what it means. Jesus first, yourself last. Last. 
and others in between. J-O-Y, J-O-Y, I know what it means. Jesus first, yourself last, and others in between. And it seems to me that one of the ways we put Jesus first is by putting others first. And in this there is joy. And so in this season when there is so much, so many opportunities to be generous, to show kindness, I pray that we all may encounter Christ in the gift of one another and in the gift of those whom we are able to love. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Our hymn this morning is number 224, and we are singing the second and the third stanzas of number 224, Good Christian uh, friends rejoice. Let us stand and rejoice. <laughs> 